One quick message before we start today's show. I want to tell you guys about a great libertarian blog called The Liberty Theorist. The Liberty Theorist is where our friend Brad Tracy discusses all of the shady things government has been up to and why libertarianism is the only viable way to keep power out of the hands of government. Brad is a Rothbardian libertarian who believes that the U.S. is desperately in need of prison reform. I'll give you a uh, hell yeah to that. I agree there. That victimless crime should be abolished. Yes, agree with that. And that we need to end the welfare, warfare, and spy state. Yep, follow along with you there. And that true free market capitalism is the only way to go. Well, socialism kills human production. Can't argue with that. Bottom line, the government should stay the hell out of your life. You can find The Liberty Theorist by going to medium.com slash at, that's the at sign, Liberty Theorist. You can also find it on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash The Liberty Theorist. Check it out today. Welcome to Felony Friday a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back yet again to another edition of Felony Friday, uh, your favorite weekly show, I hope, here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. But you know what? If it's not your favorite, that's okay. I'm not going to take offense to it. You know, nobody's perfect. You know, maybe you like one of our other two shows. Maybe you like our Monday show hosted by Mark Clare. It's our flagship program where Mark's going to interview leaders in the libertarian movement, uh, entrepreneurs and movers and shakers and all types of people. Brian McWilliams on Wednesday hosts Electric Liberty Land. It's current events, it's comedy, it's culture, it's insanity, it's cursing, it's, it's wild. So to get all three of these shows, subscribe to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. And you know what? If you like what you hear, just leave us a uh, review and uh, a comment and all that good stuff, and it helps out with the algorithm. So more good people, especially in these election times when people are angry that their their candidate might not have been elected. They're looking for more libertarian content, looking for more stuff like that. So give us a boost, would you? Today's show, let's turn the page to today's show, because this is super, super important and a great show to share uh, with all kinds of people, people of all stripes. We have another interview with a prisoner on death row, and this is another co-author uh, from the Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row, which I'm going to link to on the show notes page. You can find it by going to our fancy brand new website at lionsofliberty.com. Check it out. Uh, click around. Check out uh, all the uh, changes we've made there, which is thanks to our patrons who have supported us and uh, made this all possible. So thank you for that, patrons. The interview with uh, today's guest who is on death row, these interviews always, you know, they always... They always get me with how raw they are and just the, uh, you know, just the pure honesty. And it's so, you know, I always leave in the, uh, you know, the cutting away um, because it's actually two different calls. It's, uh, you know, we're talking on a phone call to death row. Obviously, they can't call in on Zoom. And it's two different phone calls. So I get a 30-second uh, a warning and a 15 or I get a 60-second warning and a 30-second warning when the call is going to end, and then they call back in. They can do two phone calls. So I leave all that stuff in 
mostly because it would be a pain to edit it out, but also because I want you guys to to experience that, what it is like to have a conversation with someone who is sitting on death row. So hopefully you guys will check it out and share it around. Hope you enjoy today's episode. All right, so we're here uh, with Tessie Castillo before uh, we start the interview uh, with uh, Terry Robinson, a.k.a. Shanton. And uh, Tessie's been on the show before, co-author of uh, Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row, which she wrote with four uh, prisoners on death row. And I wanted to have her on real quick before the interview to talk about this case specifically because she's taken an interest in it. Uh, Shanton has claimed he is innocent. And uh, but first, Tessie, welcome back to Felony Friday. Thank you for having me again. Well, thanks for coming on and thanks for everything you've done to help to facilitate and set up the, these uh, these interviews. But I did want to bring you on because this case specifically, you've taken an interest. We can't talk about the specifics of the case, but I wanted to ask you, um, what is different or, or why is it so difficult, in your opinion, to prove innocence in a case, someone who's been convicted and sentenced to uh, death? Sure. There's a few misconceptions that, that I walked into this whole situation with. I used to think, uh, we all know that there are organizations like the Innocence Project and others that take on these kinds of cases and, and do an incredible job of exonerating people. And so I thought initially that if someone is innocent, then all they have to do is apply to an organization like the Innocence Project, and the Innocence Project will review their case. And if they feel that there's credible evidence of innocence, then they'll take on their case. So I felt that there was a, an outlet uh, for people who were innocent. But what I discovered is that organizations like the Innocence Project, while they do incredible work, there's actually a, a very strict criteria for even being eligible for aid with those organizations. And many people, including Chantan, are not eligible. He doesn't meet the requirements. Um, one of the requirements is that you're not allowed to have an attorney. And everyone who, who receives the death penalty is automatically assigned two attorneys. Now, whether or not those attorneys are actually trying to prove innocence, that's a whole different thing. Mm. Uh, but merely the fact that they have attorneys at all makes them in ineligible um, for programs like the Innocence Project. And additionally, even if you can meet the criteria, they, those projects actually only take on a, a tiny fraction of the cases that they receive. Uh, they tend, understandably, an organization with very limited resources who can't maybe manage every single case that they're given, so they choose certain ones. Um, and everyone else, they're, they're told, no, I'm sorry, we can't take your case. That doesn't mean that those people who were rejected are not also innocent. It simply means that there's only a limited number of uh, slots available in organizations like the Innocence Project. So that was one thing that, that I didn't understand. There's a lot fewer resources available to people who aren't innocent than I thought originally. Um, another thing that I learned is I was just so confused by how uh, a prosecutor can build a case for against a person who wasn't even at the scene of a crime. Like, how do you find enough evidence to convict someone who wasn't there, right? Wow. And in reading these cases, I'm 
realizing how that is done. And, and it's really, it's incredible. It's sort of like a, a masterful um, presentation of, of facts. Um, so one thing that can happen is that, let's say you've got, um, he's actually calling in. <laughs> okay. We, we can pick this up at the end. All right. My guest today on Felony Friday is Terry Robinson. Um, he goes by the name Shanton, so that's what we'll be, uh, I'll be calling him today. Uh, Shanton has been a prisoner on death row for 20 years. He was tried capitally before a jury in April of 2000 in, uh, criminal, in the criminal session of Superior Court in Wilson County, North Carolina. The jury found him guilty of first-degree murder and uh, attempted robbery with a dangerous weapon. Following the capital sentencing proceeding, the jury recommended a sentence of death for first degree for the first degree murder conviction. Shanton maintains that he is innocent. Shanton, welcome to Felony Friday. Thanks. Thanks very much. I look forward to talking to you today. Yeah, look forward to talking with you as well. And you know, I've asked uh, your three other co-authors on the Crimson Letters this this same question at the at the beginning of the interview, and I'm interested in getting your perspective on this as well, especially because you do maintain your your innocence in this case. So, when you're going through this trial, and uh, you know you're on trial for murder, um, things are happening. You get the you you get convicted, and you know eventually your sentence is read, and you hear that you are sentenced to death. Can you just explain, you know, what was your your state of mind at that point in time? What was your, what did you feel? What were your emotions? So I had always heard this before um, about having these um, experiences where you're just kind of on the outside and you're kind of looking in and you can see yourself and all the things that are happening around you, this tremendous out-of-body experience. Um, the first time that it happened to me is when I was shot. I just remember just kind of seeing myself, seeing how it all played out and seeing these people around me rushing um, to try to help and just thinking that that moment was the end of my life. Like, it would be my last breath. And I think the second time that it happened was surely the day that they said guilty. I, mean, I just had this experience where I was really removed from everything I had known, everything that I was. I didn't recognize myself. I didn't recognize the people around me. I didn't recognize the proceedings. It just all felt like this haze that I was just kind of moving through. And I was just trying to find my way back to the life that I had known before this all began. So it was just this real out-of-body experience where I was just kind of re- removed and detached from, um, from, my, from, my, from myself, from my conscience. What, was it something that, that you prepared yourself for at all? Did you think it was possible that, that you, you would be convicted? Like, What were your expectations as the case was going on? So given the um, claims that I had made initially that I was not present and hearing the DNA that supported um, the DNA that was clearly found inside the crime the crime scene that indicated um, that I was not present, no, I did not think I was going to be convicted. In fact, my attorneys um, in their um, in their strategic um, um, beliefs decided that I shouldn't put on evidence because the, the evidence that had been presented by the prosecution um, indeed pointed to my innocence. So I believed in the system. I always believed in the system. There was a time before when it didn't work out for me, but I still didn't just lose my faith con- con- entirely 
in the judicial system because I know how imperative that is to our society and our community. So I did believe in the judicial system. And I had heard that people could, like myself, with my profile and my background, um, that they could be falsely accused and acquitted. But for myself, it didn't happen that way. So, so take us through, you get convicted. Um, you know, obviously, you're, you're not expecting it. Uh, it hits you like a ton of bricks. What was it like as you started to serve your sentence? Did you do any time in, in solitary confinement? You know, what was that first like year, two years like for you? So, I guess I had had my own preconceived notions of what death row must be like. And when I came here, I was so surprised that um, the conditions had kind of um, replicated some of the same living conditions that I had just been removed from. There was this county jail type of field where there was this pod. Um, I thought that death row, each inmate served their time individually in a cell block for 23 hours a day. And that is the case in some states, but in death in North Carolina, there's this pod that has these 24 cells around the pod. And there's a time of day when the doors are open and the guys kind of just mile um, about in this day room, kind of watch, watch TV, play cards, interact with one another. So when I came into this block and saw that these guys were actually out and just kind of um, congregating with one another at card tables and some were like studying um, the Quran, doing religious studies, there was a TV on the wall with some guys watching TV. That threw me for a loop, a loop initially. And then I started to think that maybe different wasn't as bad as I thought it was, at least for them. For me, I was still living this nightmare, and I was still kind of waiting for it to be over. So my first night was probably the most drastic. I mean, it took everything in me to get through it. But with the help of some guys who were considerate enough to kind of set aside their own um, immediate hardships and struggles that they were going through just to kind of tend to my um, needs. And it did kind of help me to to find my, 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 my way through my first night on death row. And then after that, because I had been to prison before, I know the protocol. I know that there's a policy by which officers must follow, then a policy by which inmates must follow. And that policy is in order to be uh, um, an effective inmate, in order to not make life harder on yourself, not become not become a target, that you have to start living like an inmate. You have to find a way to, um, regardless of your claims of guilt or innocence, you have to live like a death row inmate. And so for the first year, I did that. I started to engage in activities that I saw around me, playing cards all day, and I'm just kind of engaging in a lot of prison jargon, back and forth, politics about nothing watching TV, just spending a lot of idle time and really kind of counting the days, John, counting the days and the minutes and the seconds until, I mean, I, unfortunately, I would gotten to see a couple of executions. And so that was the scariest thing because now my integral clock, my internal clock started to count oh. down. Yeah, I, I can't imagine that. So you've been on death row for, for 20 years. What, if you had to point to, you know, one or two things that have helped you to, you know, navigate that time, helped to strengthen you through that time? What would you say it was? I mean, it's kind of mushy, but, of course, anyone would have um, 
caring and loving parent could understand when I say that it was my mom just having her here throughout the entire ordeal, um, seeing how it affected her and wanting so much to take that away to um, kind of make things better for her. And I know that one way to do that was to not let her see um, my pain, not let her see what being here was doing to me. And so I had to kind of really create this exterior that was um, defiant and that was kind of adamant and it was just rugged and I could I could handle death row if it meant for her sake. So I didn't go down to visitation each week and then put on this front like um, it didn't bother me to be here. I just kind of put on this front like um, I can stand being here and I can't survive it. And I think what gave me that sense of ambition and motivation to kind of um, to outlast this ill circumstance was that of course I needed it to get through these 20 years but more so it was for my mother yeah is that would you say that's something that is is common or is that uncommon for um, prisoners on death row to have you know family that you know they're still in, in close contact with I mean it's more common than people would think but I think just North Carolina's death row is a, a different situation in itself. A lot of our families are close by, and they can um, make the journey, and they can keep in contact through letters. But it's not always the case, and there are um, few to none who's, I mean, there are quite a few whose, whose families don't have any interactions and haven't had that uh, human connection, have lost that, um, that link to their past, and to the people that they were, and that's is something that's really. Uh, I mean, it could be, it, it could be, it can cause despair in yourself just to see a person going through that that, that doesn't have their family. So I always knew how fortunate I was, and I counted my blessings every day to be able to have the support that I had because um, I would see guys here who didn't have that, and and the toll that it takes being in a in a, a place like death row with um, no one to turn to. Right. So I want to turn for a minute here. I know we're going to probably get interrupted and have to restart the call, but um, I want to pivot and ask you about about your writing. Um, Obviously, you've been a a co-author on on the Crimson Letters. Have you always been a writer? Is is this something that that started, um, you know, since you've been on on death row, or or how did that come about? So I've always been learned. Um, In school, I used to pride myself on being smart. My mom used to dote over my grades and I, mean, I was always just academically um, ambitious and I thought that I would do well in life um, in school. And I did write during those times, but it wasn't a, um, it wasn't a practice. You know, it was just, um, then over the years, the only other experiences I had with writing was in prison. It was just kind of letters, letters to my family, letters to, um, people who I was maybe exploring a relationship with and I during those times I may try my hand at a poem a poem or two but I'd never done anything um, I guess as as self-reflecting as like a memoir mm-hmm. or an essay that kind of uh, took me back on on some let's say, experiences in my life and the things that I was going through and kind of helped me to find that closure so it wasn't until we started programs here on death row in 2013. One of the 
initial classes was creative writing. And in that class, we began to kind of explore different styles of writing, um, memoirs, poems, different styles of poems and those things. And that's when writing kind of took on a new um, purpose for me. So did you find that, because uh, you've written quite, quite a bit, um, what, what drives you to continue to, to write? What, what's, what, what kind of fuels your fire? You have 60 seconds remaining. Um, I realized that writing is my platform. Like, it's my universe. It's my world. It's where I can be me, and I have all the, to say, um, I am the lawmaker, and I get to decide who um, is um, culpable and who's not. And it's just the one thing that I have sole control over that no one can take from. And it's where I can um, be unapologetically myself, you know what I'm saying, that I can be honest. You have 30 seconds remaining. And that I owe it to myself, to be honest. And so that's my ambition, that writing is just, it's, I write as an act of defiance um, because I never lived a life of um, luxury and wealth. And, and writing gives me that. When I write, I'm rich. Wow, that's a really, that's a really cool take. Um, so it's like a, it's, it's almost like a, the 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 freedom that you have you can express through your writing that's 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 pretty cool hey just want to take a real quick minute here to talk about another libertarian podcast if you haven't listened to good morning liberty it's a five day per week show nate and charlie i don't know how they do it five days per week pumping out fantastic content also um their twitter game i have to say i've been following them on twitter is on point at Good AM Liberty. Check it out. I don't know if it's Nate or Charlie running the account, but whichever one is doing it, fantastic job. Um, also, their, their show. So what is their show? They are trying to really take the onus of trying to change people's minds of how uh, people view libertarians. And they're trying to do this by leading with a message of compassion first, Rather than, um, you know, pounding on your keyboard and screaming at people like libertarians uh, love to do. So they're looking at ways in which policies impact people and using the principles of liberty to provide compassionate solutions. Uh, they both have uh, backgrounds in healthcare. They own a healthcare IT company. Check it out. Good Morning Liberty, wherever you get your podcast. You can also um, subscribe to their podcast by going to BernieLies.com, which uh, in an aw- so awesome redirects right to their uh, their podcast links page. So check that out. Good Morning Liberty. All right. So you'll be calling back in a minute here. Okay, I'm back. All right, chance on. Okay, well, I want to for the next question. I want to pivot back to um, you know serving uh, serving uh, on death row as a you know as someone who uh, expresses their innocence. How many other like would you say you said that there's twenty you know twenty some uh, prisoners on death row? How many maintain their innocence? Is it is it a handful? Is is it more than that? So here's the thing with that. Um, for a long time, I mean, even now, I am trying to find my way with um, the confidence to say that I'm innocent. And that's like crazy to think that if a man is innocent, why would they have any an issue with saying that? And it's because you have to live this experience and know um, the stigma 
of innocence in prison and how you can easily be disregarded, how you are likely to be disregarded when you claim you're innocent. It just kind of, it just comes off this, it comes off as like rubbish. Like everybody thinks that everybody in prison says that they're innocent. But quite contrarily, their role isn't that way. And I've been in other prisons before, in other general populations, and it, it's not that way there either. More people are quick to uh, accept culpability and claim their guilt. I mean, there's something about this idea of when you're doing time and when there's nothing else to lose, why, when you're running a certain social peers, like, why continue to folks? Why continue saying you're innocent if you're not? And so, in my experience, more people, especially here on death row, are um, accepting of their uh, responsibility and whatever kind of misdeeds that led them here, what kind of crimes that led them here. But unfortunately, the stigma of innocence does exist. It is real. And I myself have partaken in it because I've heard guys here on death row who were actually proven to be innocent at some point said that they were innocent and I doubted them. I I, I cast them off as just like, yeah, right. Like, um, that's something that is so, um, is not able to be proven. So it's, it's kind of likely that you would say this. And so that, and then I would see the response that other people had on them. I would see the response. I would evaluate the response I had on them. And that's where my intimidation to, um, to profess my innocence derived. It just kind of uh, spawned from this, this, um, negative experience throughout the years of seeing guys who, were actually proven to be innocent, say that they were innocent, and and how I responded. So there are, are there are more guys on death row who claim um, their guilt. There are a lot of classes that are geared towards that, like restorative justice. I mean, it's like specifically geared towards helping us cope with the things that we have done to lead us here to death row. Mm. And there were other classes um, as well, but there are a few here who do maintain their innocence. That's that's really interesting talking about the the stigma of innocence. It, it makes sense though now now that you now that you said it, and you know even you know someone like myself on the outside looking at it, or I, I would say you know most people who like you were saying that they have uh you know people in general have trust in the criminal justice system. And I don't after all the stories that that I've heard. I don't I don't trust it to work properly, but. You know, they 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 think, you know, how could somebody be sentenced to uh, to death? I mean, that mistakes like that don't just happen, but they do. I mean, they do happen, and uh, you know, we've seen it, like you mentioned, time and time again, people being proved uh, innocent after being on on death row. Um, I do want to ask you a question about that, about proving your innocence um, from a death sentence. Why is it? so difficult and what are like the obstacles that maybe people wouldn't, wouldn't even assume were there, um, that are in your way to, you know, proving your innocence. I think that, I don't know, maybe there's this, I think that we're just genetically built to, um, adhere to controversy. Like we love controversy. People, the exciting story is, um, the one that's told with a lot of uh, drama and tragedy and, so happy endings just aren't as appealing, and in this case, it was just more appealing for the jury to believe word of mouth than actual physical evidence that was pre- presented before them. And I, 
I get their difficulty. Um, there are some people who, if they, especially this in the case of like a family member, I mean, if they make a claim, it's more, it, it's hard to um, discredit because you have to question yourself, like, this is your family member. Why would they do or say something to them to cause you this degree of harm, this such great harm, unless it is true? So I certainly understand the jury's um, position and the difficulty. It doesn't make it right, but I do understand it. And I think one of the obstacles is that I mean, it takes like little to nothing to get to death row, and then it just takes this mountain of a, of, of 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 processes and, and procedures um, to get off death row. And there's these, like for instance, in the direct appeal that's at the North Carolina Supreme Court, regardless to what evidence that is that you may have, kind of indicating your innocence, you can only present constitutional errors. You can only say that well, my lawyers were ineffective or the jurors' instructions um, weren't adequate or there weren't enough um, um, preparatory challenges. And No one's going to let a person off death. No one's even going to review their claim of innocence because their lawyer didn't get enough preparatory challenges for a jury. And so for me, it was so idle. That phase of my appeal was so idle because it had nothing to do with my innocence. And so I think that once you are found guilty... Um, there's a system that kind of it targets a certain demographic of people. It targets um, poor and disenfranchised people, and those are the people who are candidates for death row. And because of their um, financial um, circumstances, because they are uh, financially insufficient, financially insufficient, once you're here on death row, it's almost it's virtually impossible to get to to fight your way off. Yeah, there's. I mean, I, I was talking with uh, Tessie before the show about some some of the obstacles that you know people wouldn't even think were there. But you know, people are familiar with with the Innocence Project. But there's a lot of stipulations that the Innocent Innocence Project can't get involved unless you know certain criteria are met about the case. Can, can you talk about any any of that? Sure. So when I first um, arrived on death row in 2000, maybe 2001, I received a letter from a Cardoza School of Law. And I, mean, I was excited about this um, uh, this opportunity because they said that they specialize in DNA evidence. And so I wrote this this um, this summary of my case. And I mean, it, was a, it was really, really long and kind of explained everything the best I could have sent it to them. And they reviewed it. And when they sent it back, they said that they were sorry that they couldn't help me because the DNA, they did review my case and then they saw that the DNA evidence in my case had already been um, um, tested and presented before a jury and that these findings were already made um, known. And then all they could do was to go back and kind of re-examine the DNA and possibly come up with the um, same conclusion that they did before or a different conclusion. Um, so there was just no help. And then from there, I kind of really took on this I mean, it wasn't willingly, not something I wanted, but I just kind of took on this defeatist mentality. Like, there was nothing, if, a, if people who can exercise uh, elements, the strongest elements of my case to help me in my uh, exoneration are saying that there's no help, then what else could I do? And so over the years, I would receive these pamphlets or these kind of um, memos from 
Innocence Projects, but all of the guys on death row do. And so I didn't really feel like I was being targeted for my innocence. I didn't feel like this was an organization that believed in my innocence. They was just kind of meeting this quota, this quarterly quota. I'm sending these 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 memos out saying that if you're innocent, contact us. But it would always be a criteria. And one of the criteria is that you can't have legal representation. Well, everyone on death row has legal representation. And when you don't have legal representation, then that's probably because you've already exhausted the last stages of your appeal. And what's next is your execution date. And so I didn't qualify because I had legal representation. And I thought seriously about um, dismissing my legal representation for the sake of an innocent project reviewing my case. But I didn't know what they would do to my appeals. Would it sort of push me back to the beginning and I would have to start over or those type of things. So those are something I had to weigh out. And then another, which I would have gladly done if it was beneficial. But the other criteria that was almost impossible to meet was that you had to be on your last stages of your appeals. And again, this is death row. When you're on the last stages of your appeals, what, what, what's next is more overwhelming than um, this idea of, a, of an organization possibly taking your case in. Because then you're in the last hour. Like, it is the 12th hour, once you last stage. That is our, our 12th hour, the last stages of our appeal, because we know what comes next. And so, again, for the sake of my innocence, I thought long and hard about dropping my appeals, because I needed to meet these criteria, but I just couldn't. Like, death row, that is taboo. No one dropped their appeals. There have been times where guys have, but that's the um, the one thing that, that is kind of a... Uh, uh, it's just taboo. It's contra- it, we kind of frown on guys who kind of just have given up and dropped their appeals. And even the last talk amongst us of those guys in those days aren't good talks because what we need is represent, represent uh, we need representation of guys who are in it for the long haul, who can fight. And unfortunately, some people can't. So to answer your question, John, it's just there's these criteria on death row about us being not having that the last stages of our appeals. We have to be in the last stages of our appeals, and none of us are. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you explained that and went in depth there because I don't think anybody um, knows that. I certainly didn't know that before today. So, you know, that's... I don't know the reasons why they have, the, you know, these specific criteria, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm definitely going to try to ask the question and, and get an answer just, just, you know, to get a better understanding of it. I'm sure they have reasons. I mean, there's reasons to, to all kinds of different criteria that organizations have um i do want to ask you uh shanton so we might have time for this probably last question but um you know just to come back you talk about your writing um you know that that gave me you an outlet giving you some freedom um with that in mind you know when people look back on your life years from now you know many years from now when you're gone what do you want people to think about um what do you want people to take away from your life that's difficult i mean it's just more of an um enduring and impactful question than um sometimes some questions don't hit you until they're in the moment and you don't really know how to respond i do know that when i started writing and i did kind of grasp this sense of um, defiance that I had a chance in having a say in who I am and how people remember me. Um, it didn't motivate me. 
Like, it was the most inspirational thing that happened to me in all of my 20 years on death row. I'm having a chance to um, define my life and kind of um, leave this lasting prick in the sand for people after me to kind of have a chance to know who I was. And so I think my takeaway would just be that I would want people to know that I tried. My mom taught me to just try, to always do your best. And sometimes your best... Um, it isn't someone else's best. Sometimes we don't meet people's expectations. But at the end of the day, we have to know that once we've given our all, there has to be enough. And I wasn't good at it. I came from this um, idea that I had to be everybody else's best. And then it caused me to um, transition into this person that I didn't recognize. My writing helps me to kind of grasp who that person was. I'm, I'm learning that person all over again because... You have 60 seconds remaining. While I was that person, while I was going through those things, I didn't recognize myself. And so my writing helps me to kind of revisit um, some areas in my life that um, I was kind of detached, um, unaware of who I was, and kind of bring some clarity to it. And then, and then also, I just want people to know that I tried. That's a great answer. Um, so just, just before I let you go, you know, we have, I don't know. You have 30 seconds remaining. 30 seconds left. Um, I want to thank you for coming on the show and just give you, you know, the remaining time to, uh, say whatever you want. Um, your time. Sure. So I'm glad people got out and voted. I don't know. I know everyone didn't get the outcome we wanted, but, um, that is our, that's our policy. And so let's enjoy the next four years. Everybody practice social distance and check me out on walking those shoes. Thanks for having me, John. All right. Thank you, Shanton. Hey, everybody. Taking a quick break here from the show. Wanted to remind you all to check out uh, my man Tyler Colford, a.k.a. Crypto Man, and his new song, Free Ross. If you didn't hear my recent interview with Lynn Ulbricht, that was episode Felony Friday, episode 230. Interviewed Lynn Ulbricht, played Tyler's song, uh, Free Ross. It's fantastic, phenomenal. Not just for uh, the message of freeing Ross Ulbricht, but overall for changing the broken criminal justice system. All the proceeds from uh, the Free Ross song, hashtag Free Ross by Crypto Man. You can find it on Spotify and Amazon, Amazon Music. 100% of the proceeds from the song, hashtag Free Ross by Crypto Man, go towards freeing Ross Ulbricht. So please check it out. These are perilous times when they ruin your lives over victimless crimes and they sever your ties from your business loved ones and family wide. New slave labor, they barely pay you. Don't care about work ethic or major. Did you want to, uh, I don't know if you remember where you left off when we were talking at the beginning. Did you, do you have anything else that you wanted to add there? I do. Yeah. Um, so another major obstacle to people on death row being able to prove innocence is that um, one of the stages of their appeals, the one that Chantan is in right now, actually is called motion for appropriate relief. And that means that the case goes back to the original court where it was decided and uh, they're able to potentially grant a new hearing if there's uh, evidence that might show that the outcome of the original trial was, was incorrect. But the problem is that motion for appropriate relief, that case goes back to the original court that convicted them. In many cases, the same judge and the same district attorney uh, who had been there to begin with. And so I have seen over and over and over again with many different cases of people on death row 
where their cases languish in the motion for appropriate appeal, uh, appropriate relief section of appeals for decades. Uh, Chanton's case has been in there for wow. 18 years. And one of the reasons is because attorneys will actually advise them, the, the appellate attorneys, uh, we don't want to put this case, we don't want to move forward with asking for a hearing if we're going to get the same district attorney and the same judge. Because there's obviously a really heavy incentive for them not to want to admit that they put an innocent person mm -hmm. on death row. Um, and so they will wait either for the district attorney to lose an election or to retire or for the judge to retire or die. And that's an actual thing that they'll just let the case languish for years and even decades waiting for the original actors in the original trial to no longer be there. And when you've got judges which serve for life and district attorneys who don't have a limit on the number of times they can run for district attorney, then you could be waiting 20 years or more for that to happen. And it's not uncommon for people to wait that long. Wow. If that's not an indictment of how broken that system is, I, I, I don't know what is. That's uh, it's not surprising. But I, I do wonder, like the first thing that came to mind, though. I wonder if there, there, I'm sure there are, there probably are judges out there or district attorneys out there who are like, you know what, maybe I got that, that one wrong. You know, maybe, maybe it keeps them up at night. Eh, probably. I mean, probably that's, that's the, the very small, you know, minority of, of cases. Probably there a lot of these uh, judges and di district attorneys, they, you know, they don't want to see these cases again. They, they think they got a hundred percent right. But I do wonder if there's like, maybe they would like the chance to, to right a wrong that, that they reflect on. Potentially, yeah. Um, one issue too with with the death penalty is that those appeals happen automatically. So it's not like the cases that are going back to the original court are the ones that have credible evidence of innocence. They're all of them. Mm. Uh, the ones where the person was definitely guilty and the ones where there's maybe some uh, nuance there. And so it's really hard, I think, for a district attorney or a judge to give any credence to those appeals because they're just, they're just automatic. They're just they're back because they have to be. So uh, there's no reason why I should look at this case over any of the others that also came back. Yeah, there's no there's no reason to think that any that any case is different. And you're sort of uh, yeah. you're sort of con they're, they're conditioned by all of these cases coming through that. You know they can't they can't pick out the or I'm I'm sure they could if they put the put the time and effort into it but um, they don't have like you said they don't have an incentive to because they're the ones who sent them there. Another thing I discovered is is during the trials and I've been absolutely fascinated by this question of how false convictions even happen. If you've got a person who's innocent who was not even at the scene of the crime and had nothing to do with the crime, then how is a prosecutor able to amass enough evidence to commit to convince a jury and a judge to put that person to death? How do they possibly come up with enough evidence? <laughs> and so I was wondering about that. And in reading Jantan's case, I'm beginning to understand how that mm -hmm. happens. And it's really fascinating. And there's a lot of different ways it can, it can happen. Um, there's a lot of, uh, questionable things that go on with confessions, with eliciting confessions from people. There's almost no limit to what investigators are allowed mm -hmm. to do in order to get a confession from people. They can uh, deprive them of sleep for long periods of time. They can lie to them. They can promise them things. They can write the confession for them. They can do all these things. Um, 
for so to get false confessions. But even during the trial, you could have a, a, a situation, let's say, where there were six eyewitnesses who saw a murder happen. And the detectives interview all the eyewitnesses. They were all there, but they give wildly different accounts of what they saw. The description of the detectives are asking, what did the person look like? What were they wearing? How tall were they? And you could get six descriptions that don't in any way mm -hmm. match. Just nobody knows what they saw. But then when you go to trial, the jury doesn't see that there were six different descriptions. The prosecutor can pick the one description that mass matched the most closely to the suspect that they have or to the wow. defendant that they have and only bring that person to trial to, to testify. So the jury sees the testimony of an eyewitness who was there, who saw the murder with their own eyes and is providing a description that pretty closely matches the defendant. And so they're, they're very swayed by that. This person was there. They saw it. They have no reason to lie. But what the jury doesn't know is that there were five other eyewitnesses who saw something completely different. They have and, no idea. Well, the defense that. attorney could call them, right? Could call the other eyewitnesses? You could, but they sometimes yeah. don't. Or you got to be able to get them to come, too. I mean, that, that could be another, another issue yeah. to show up. But they don't sometimes. Um, and it, yeah, in, in this case, mm -hmm. they didn't. Uh, and then you have situations like um, forensic evidence, right? So you can have uh, prosecutors who want, who come with reams of evidence, dozens of pieces of evidence, forensic evidence to a trial, footprints, fingerprints, blood, hair, clothing, all of these things. They get all of these experts to stand up in front of the jury for days and testify as to does this or that match the defendant? The answer is no, that absolutely none of that matched the defendant whatsoever. But the way that they question the, the experts and the way that the experts say it is like really vague. It, it's sort of, they give these answers like, well, you know, there's, there's matching DNA bands on such and such a thing that, that could match the defendant, but might not. Um, because the way that DNA works is, is that there are bands that can match half the population mm -hmm. of the world. <laughs> like we all have DNA bands that match mm -hmm. something. Um, so they present all this evidence and it's almost like the jury sort of gets exhausted by the amount of evidence and all of the weird couched answers that they don't even see at the end of it, that the answer to all of it is no, none of the evidence matches the defendant. They all, they hear a lot of, well, it could, well, it could, well, it could. And you probably need a skilled yeah. attorney who's dealt with a case like that with DNA evidence in order to, you know, shoot holes in it. And if you don't have that, it's probably very difficult to do. Yeah. Um, you don't even have to present a defense. So in Chanton's case, his attorneys did not present a defense really? at all. Yeah. The way a trial is supposed to work is you have a prosecution present their evidence and then the defense presents their evidence and then the jury makes a decision. In Chantan's case, the prosecution, pr prosecution presented their evidence. The defense rested. What, that was what, it. what was the reasoning for that or that you know of? You'd have to ask them. <laughs> Chantan said that uh, his attorneys told him that they thought he would look more guilty if they tried to 
present evidence. Um, I'm not sure how that would be true. But <laughs> they did not present it. Wow. Um, yeah, for a capital case. Unbelievable. Um, but I do want to, uh, I need to get somebody on from the Innocence Project to get some of these questions answered. I'm sure they have reasons, you know, for their uh, stipulations and criteria. Um, I think it has to do with, with triaging. You know, if you get so many cases from so many different people and you have to, you have to pick the ones you're most likely mm-hmm. to win. Um, so I think that has a lot to do with it. And also if you've got a bunch of, I mean, only people on death row automatically are granted attorneys after their sentencing. So they have attorneys who, who technically are supposed to look into things like innocence, whereas people who got a life sentence or some other sentence have no attorneys. And so they would be the, the priority because they have mm-hmm. no one to represent them. Uh, so I sort of understand that. The unfortunate thing is that even though people on death row may have attorneys, they're often not very good. We're <laughs> not looking into innocence. Yeah, it's it's probably exactly what you said, triaging the cases and a lack of resources to uh to really do so. Yeah. But. All right, Tessie. Well, I guess this is our last last interview here, at least for at least for now. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for setting these up and writing the book and everything you've done. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode of Felony Friday, another awesome episode. Just want to remind everyone, before you get going here, off to your next uh, next podcast or your shuffle or whatever it is you're doing with your, uh, your day today, I want to thank you for giving me your time and uh, listening to this interview. I want to ask you, please to share this with a friend. The only way that we're going to expand this message that we're going to reform this criminal justice system is by sharing interviews just like this with your network. Very easy to do. And I also want to ask you to please, if you have not yet checked it out, you need to go to the Lions of Liberty store. It's lionsofliberty.store. We have a bunch of new T-shirt designs, really interesting stuff, really eye-catching designs. Uh, Of course, our taxation is death shirt has been a hit. It's selling like crazy. We now have the the tax on wax off shirt, just awesome. And and there's more coming. We're really trying to get into uh, what we're calling it the Lions of Liberty brand of shirts. So you're going to get the cool design on the front and then up, just real small, up by the tag on the back, you're going to have our Are You Ready to Roar logo. Uh, we're trying to, you know, take another angle here and influence people through, uh, you know, some snazzy t-shirts. So check it out, lionsofliberty.store. And remember, if you're in the Lions of Liberty Pride, you get 20% off. So for as little as five bucks a month, you're going to get 20% off all your t-shirt orders. So to join the Pride, go to patreon.com slash lions of liberty and with that being said guys thank you so much for joining me have a great weekend or week or whenever you're listening to this just have an awesome day i'll talk to you next week this is john odermatt signing off always remember to keep your head up and the fire is the liberty burning